for our scripture reading today. Turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And slide your finger down to verse 17. We're going to read this account of Paul's uh, meeting with the church at Ephesus, at least the elders of the, uh, of the fellowship there, um, and the, uh, the importance of what he shared with them. And this will serve as uh, the basis for the first of what will be four uh, sermons leading up to our Christmas uh, Lord's Day worship. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent, that's Paul, sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you... Uh, among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word commended by the Apostle Paul, not only to the elders at the church of of Ephesus, but also to us here at Heritage Baptist Church today, to not only our members, but those who have come in today, who are part of our family, part of this fellowship. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would help us to receive this word. God, how I have prayed during this week, and I pray right now that this would be more than just another 
religious exercise. It would be more than just another talk and, and a, a, a sermonizing about Christmas. But these words would help us to understand why Jesus had to come and what this whole message of our celebration of Advent actually means. Oh, God, help us now to not only hear, but hear with our hearts and receive and respond, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Help me as I preach. All of these things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, are your decorations up? Getting that way? The boxes at least are in the garage, out of the attic, okay. Are your parties set? Do you know when they are? You're looking forward to them, I know, all the eating at Christmas, everything that goes with it, the fellowship. But let me ask you this, and, and I do not want this to sound trite. Everybody hears Christmas sermons. But let me ask it anyway. I hope it sinks in. Are you ready to celebrate Christmas? Well, at least one is. You know, as I anticipated this Christmas season and the messages that we've been doing all through 1 Timothy chapter 1 and leading up to our worship, as I mentioned a few moments ago, we will be having church on Christmas morning, all right? Amen. So get up, open your gifts, or maybe wait until afterwards. I don't care what you do, but by all means, be here because we will be worshiping together on Christmas Sunday morning. And so as I looked at that, and, and I thought about what we had been talking about in 1 Timothy, and then trying, not, not trying to force anything, but trying to see the relationship, perhaps, if there really is one, between what has been going on in our studies in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and the message of Christmas, I saw several connections. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to be trying to, to unpack all of those. These will be, um, in large part, something that will be a little bit of a departure from what I normally do. I normally just take a, a book of the Bible a chapter of the Bible, verses of the Bible, and we just plow through whatever is there in front of us. This will be a little bit more topical because it needs to be, and we're going to work our way up to Christmas Day. But why did Christ come? Why did He come? Well, Paul tells us, we go back into chapter 1 of Timothy, do you see why now that I am seeing a connection? And, and by the way, there are several. You can look up, you can Google why did Christ come, and you're going to find different articles that will tell you different things and seven reasons and ten reasons. I'm going to give you three that we're going to be looking at for the next several weeks. This is by far and away the most important, and we're going to get at this. Because there's a lot there in this verse. The saying is trustworthy. Paul goes back to chapter 1, verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This is really important stuff, Paul says, that Christ Jesus, Christ Jesus. You know, most of 
Often he uses the words in their flip-flopped form, Jesus Christ. But here in Timothy, he says Christ Jesus. He's emphasizing the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior. Christ, the Messiah. Jesus, the Savior. Yeshua. Why did he come into the world? Reason number one. He came into the world to save sinners. Any sinners here? Paul said, I'm at, the, I'm at the top of the list. He came into the world to save sinners. We're going to be talking about that, and uh, I, I'm looking forward to it today and in the next couple of weeks. But there's a second reason, and this is what we have been talking about. I, I thought to myself today, am I belaboring this unnecessarily? The answer is no. The answer is no. Jesus came into the world. I'm not putting these in any order. They're all vital. Because if you don't have this one, you're not going to get at the first one. How do you know Christ came into the world to save sinners? Well, because Christ is truth himself. For this purpose, I was born, Jesus says. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. By the way, John 14, 6, this is not on the slides, but... You know what it says. Jesus said, I am the way, the what? The truth. Jesus is the truth. So he came to bear witness to the truth. Everyone, listen to this, who is of the truth. I hope this is a setup. I'm begging you to listen. Not just here with your your ears, but here with your heart. And then the response. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, and that's why I fill every sermon with a lot of Scripture. I may fail to express exactly what I want to, but that's really secondary to me giving you the Word of God. You need to listen to the Word of God. So, reason number one, at least as as I've ordered it, is that Christ came into the world to save sinners, and we all stand at the top of the heap with that. Reason number two, he came to testify to the truth, and I love this. It's going to be the setup for the first point. Jesus came into the world to do battle, and we don't often realize that. Therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. We have physical bodies. He Himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. He was God, the second person of the Trinity, from eternity. And yet he took on human flesh, Christ incarnate. Now look at this. Why? Third reason, that through death. Jonathan, thank you for previewing the real meaning of Christmas in singing about the cross Through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So, while I encourage you to continue with whatever traditions in our ABF class, our adult Bible fellowship class this morning, we we talked about traditions that we have, what are some traditions that you have, don't don't listen to preachers that tell you just to throw aside Christmas. And as long as your tradition 
is not anti-biblical, then go ahead with your traditions, but by all means, without violating Scripture in your traditions, always do your best to unpack what the Word says that Christmas is all about. And so, for the next several weeks, this may sound, uh, for, for those of you who've been here any length of time, this will not sound different. But for those of you who are new, and, and I encourage you, if you're here visiting with, with family, uh, I'm, not, I'm not telling you, hey, come and join our church, but maybe, just maybe for the next several weeks, you'll come back and, and hear what, what the Word is going to say in uh, a way that maybe you've never really thought about Christmas before. And then, here's also what I'm encouraging you to do, everybody, read the Christmas story out of the Gospels, all right? But read the Christmas story out of Genesis 1 through 3. And read the Christmas story out of Revelation 12. And if you do that, you will be, at least you'll have a leg up, you'll, you'll be prepared to hear some of the, the sermons for the next several weeks. In fact, I've, I've already titled them. I normally don't pick a title until well into the preparation during the week, but today, uh, truth robbers. We're going to talk about that, how that's connected with Christmas. Next week, the rise of the serpent. The third week, the title of the sermon is Doomed by a Baby, straight out of Revelation chapter 12, Genesis chapter 1 through 3, and then on Christmas Sunday morning, we're going to talk about the coming of the King that we were singing about just a few minutes ago. All right. With that in mind, let's walk through these three. You probably looked at this and what in the world, or usually I list scripture and we go through them, but here are the three points that I want to try to make today to you to think of Christmas perhaps a little bit differently than you have thought in the past. And and, and to, to, to really get at what God wants us to get at with this celebration of the advent of the Messiah. First, the violence of Christmas. The violence of Christmas. A simple reading of the real Christmas story. Again, I'm not against sentiment. And you, 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 can, you can read all the little things that I, I don't... Jan was reading something to me, very sentimental. Some of you may know this already. I had heard snippets of it, but it was how we got the song, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Very heartwarming. A guy that worked at Montgomery Wards, and he was poor, didn't have anything for Christmas, so he wrote a poem for his daughter, and it was set to music, and they tried to sell it. Do you guys know this story? It's really heartwarming. We were driving, and I was crying, and no, I really wasn't. <laughs> and, and so he showed it to his boss, and he, the boss was so overwhelmed that at their Christmas party, I don't know if he got a bonus, but they gave a copy to all of the employees, and then they tried to sell it, and nobody would, nobody would sing it. Nobody would pitch it to several people. Do some of you know who did the first 
musical version of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer? Gene Autry. How about that? Do you guys know who Gene Autry was? Okay. Google it. It's fascinating. He was a hero. And he sang it. It became the second most popular song after White Christmas. Now, in reality, neither Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer nor White Christmas has really anything to do with the real meaning of Christmas. But if you enjoy those songs, then by all means, listen to them on your radio because there's a very good likelihood that you will not hear them in this church. <laughs> because we, we really, we try, we try our best to do songs that point to Jesus and that are worshipful. And so that's why I'm preaching this sermon. That's why we'll go back to Genesis chapter 1 through 3 next week and talk about the rise of the serpent. Because the story of Christmas, the real story of Christmas, is not just a sweet, sentimental, poetic story of a child's birth. All is calm, all is bright, with angels singing and cattle lowing and shepherding, shepherds watching their flocks. By the way, I'll just do a little kind of a setup. Who else was watching the flocks? Hang on, we'll talk about that in a minute. The real story of, Christi uh, of Christmas is a violent war story. It is a cosmic conflict between the fundamental forces of good and evil. It is a death and life story. John Sykes preached last week. I listened from home, recovering from surgery. Thank you for your prayers for those of you who knew I had surgery. And... Uh, John, you, you, you asked a question last week, and you, you posed it as a part of the gospel story. And I thought to myself then, and I thought even more about it during the week, but John shared this question that, that you could use in your witnessing. Why should I let you into my heaven? Someday all of us will die, and we will stand before God. John was sharing that you, you will be asked the question by God himself. Why should I let you into my heaven? Do you know what? That is a Christmas question. If 1 Timothy 1.15 is actually a Christmas verse, which it is, Christ came into the world to save sinners, then that is a Christmas question. And the answer that you give to that, why should I get into heaven, connected directly to the gospel. Now, now here's, here's normally what we focus on with that question. Why God looks at us, he says, why should I let you into my heaven? Normally, here's what we focus on. We focus on what we do. Well, because I believed, I repented, I had faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is important. But before you get to that, before you get to what we do, you have to go back all the way to creation, you have to see God's expectations that were given to Adam and to Eve. And then you have to deal with the fall of mankind because of disobedience to God. And that is no small thing because basically the upshot of that is that we can all stand before God and say, I'm dead. 
and I do not deserve to go into heaven. And then you get to God's solution of sending his son, our Savior, the second person of the Trinity, deity wrapped in human flesh, and it all begins with his birth. And that's why the second point of this sermon is also very important. Now, if you, again, if you haven't been here, we've been talking a lot about this in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. Remember that Paul is writing toward the end of his life. He's writing to this church that he loved so dearly, the church at Ephesus, that ancient city situated close. It's, it's a little bit inland, but it's close to the coast of modern-day, uh, the, the western part of modern-day Turkey. And the Apostle Paul, we, we gather from not only Acts chapter 20, but Acts chapter 19. We go back and do a little bit of the study, the historical study. And Paul had been, and you got a flavor of that in Acts 20 when I read it. And he had been pouring his life for three years to ground the church at Ephesus in the truth. Sound doctrine is, is a word that he uses there. And he instructs at the same time, I don't know if you noticed this when, when we went through Acts chapter 20, but what Paul does is just tell about his ministry. I was with you. I laid the foundation. I did not shrink away from, from declaring the whole counsel of God. And then what is the very next thing that he does? It almost sounds weird because to, to talk about it today is not something that I, I think is talked about a lot in the church. And that is the threat of lies that counter the sound doctrine, the truth. And so Paul instructs Timothy to help the church by warning against the lies that will eventually come. Now, let's walk through this again. I'm going to give several verses. We're going to go back to Acts chapter 20. It'll be on the screen so we kind of follow along, okay? What does Paul say to the elders? I, I thought about this a lot last week. Think about what he could have said. He could have talked about the church finances. He could have talked about the church building. He could have talked about having a vision. for You know, he could have talked about a lot of things that people are talking about. But here is basically what he said. After telling his own personal history of, of his ministry to the church at Ephesus, here's what he says to the leaders of the church. I know that when I'm gone, after my departure. Watch this because we're, we're going we're gonna to home in on, on this. Savage wolves, fierce wolves, ESV. I went to one of the other translations. Savage to me is, is a little bit weightier than fierce. A person can be fierce, but a person can be savage. And these wolves are savage. They're going to come in. They are, they, are at, they are on the outside, and they're going to come in. And they're not always going to look like savage wolves. They're going to come in among you, not sparing the flock. We're going to come back to this. 
and from among your own selves. So look at this, from without and from within will arise men speaking twisted things. These two are savage wolves. Their goal is to draw away the disciples after them. So that's what he's warning against, the false teachers and the false teaching. And what Paul does is put them on high alert. Here's basically what he's saying to the, to the Ephesian elders. Guys, if I, if I could put you in, in an let's say in our military sense in the United States, he's saying if if you have anything that tells you to just coast and everything is okay and everything should be at peace, that's DEFCON 5. You familiar with the DEFCON system? The defensive readiness condition DEFCON 5 is when it's just peace. There's nothing happening. It moves up to DEFCON 1, which is you're in a state of war or a nuclear threat is coming. Paul is putting the elders... Now, what, what are the elders supposed to do? We can get at that in just a second. But the elders are supposed to go back to the church and they are supposed to relay what Paul has told them. So Paul is putting the elders into a condition, a readiness condition, a DEFCON 1. And so he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all of the flock. I just, I, I mentioned a few minutes ago, the shepherds were watching their flock. Who else is watching the flock? Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul was constrained to give not only the proper grounding, but the proper warning that there would always, there will always be people who try to undo the truth that is being preached. Who are the truth robbers. Let's see what Paul said, and let's see what, what uh, Jesus called them. Again, let's go back. I know that after my departure, what does he call them? Not just wolves. It, 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 sometimes wolves can be domesticated, okay? That's not the picture here. These are savage wolves will come in among you. It's not a maybe. I, I've thought long and hard, Lord, what does that look like for Heritage Baptist Church? Savage wolves will come in among us. And then G Jesus even said it before, long before Paul came on the scene. Because, listen, because this has been a perennial problem, we're going to see next week just how far it goes back. But Jesus called it, he tweaked it a little bit, not just savage wolves, Beware of false prophets who come to you. Again, you're not always going to recognize them. In fact, in Jesus' way of thinking, you're probably not at the very beginning going to recognize them because guess what? They look just like you or me. Probably dress the same, look nice, sound nice, 
But inwardly, and by the way, this is always going to come out, inwardly, they are ravenous. So you've got two things operating here. This is what these wolves are going to be like. They're not only savage, they're hungry. They're ravenous. And that's why Paul tells the leaders to be truth guardians. Truth guardians, that's, that's what the leaders are to be. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. Isn't that what we're after? If, if this is just another Kiwanis Club meeting or Rotary Club, that's one thing. But this is an opportunity for the church to get together to hear what God's word says to us so that we can be built up so that our inheritance can be made sure. John, your sermon last week talked about that. Make your calling and your election sure. If anyone, now I, I went to James too because here is part of that ministry. It's not just to, to, to give out the truth, but it's to see where there are individuals and sometimes families or, or whatever the case may be. If anyone among you wonders from what? The truth. And someone brings him back. It's a shepherding kind of thing. Whoever brings back a sin, sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That, that's the work of the, of the truth guardian, the shepherd. And that's also the, the, the weapon that we use. But let's look at the weapon that they use now. Who are the wolves after? I go back a third time. Who else was watching over the flocks? by night. Well, we know God was watching, Jesus was watching, that's true. But who else? I don't know if this gets into your thinking, your visualizing. Who is watching this flock according to the Word of God right now? The enemy of our souls And he's watching this flock. He's watching this pastor. He's watching our elders to see if we are not only presenting the truth, but with all of our hearts seeking to live out that truth inadequately, imperfectly, for sure, but seeking to do that because it's important. Savage wolves will come in among you. And he, he gives these words, not sparing the flock. And let's look at some of the other. These are images of a thief and a lion, but they all go with this whole theme of the wolves, the ravenous, they're hungry, they're savage. They are going to brutalize any flock that is not being watched over by shepherds using the word of God as truth. They're doing it all over this world. They're doing it in this city. They will do it here. If not, if not challenged by shepherds, they're not going to spare the flock. They're, listen, these savage wolves have no 
ounce of pity any more than a hungry wild wolf that is hungry has pity over its prey. Are you following what I'm saying? Your adversary, the devil, prowls about seeking someone to devour. Anybody ever watch uh, National Geographic or uh, movies and we, we seem to be drawn, maybe it's just me, to watching shows about sharks eating those cute little seals and, and, and wolves? Just watched a special on, on the, this is the 150th anniversary of Yellowstone National Park. And part of that featured wolves. And I, I really didn't know much about wolves, but I, I got educated real quickly, and it, it's, it's brutal. Wolves travel in packs, highly intelligent. You know who they go after? Now, they go after small prey. They go after big prey. Eh, they don't like it when they have to tackle a moose or even an elk or even a deer because those hooves and horns can lead to damage. But my guess is, and according to the Bible, is one of their favorite meals is a sheep. No defense except for a shepherd. And wolves... I'm not going to go into the whole detail of what I saw on TV, but wolves um, will just kill prey. Now, if, they have, if the food source is good and they have a lot of food, then probably about the only thing that they will eat is the, the stomach, the visceral organs, and they'll leave the rest. But hungry, hungry wolves will pick a carcass clean. And so we read words like this, and sometimes the imagery just escapes us. Paul calls these people that are against the truth, that want to steal and kill and destroy. And why do the, the now wait, these savage wolves are false prophets that come in from outside. Did you see any false prophets come through the doors today? I'm looking around. Nope, can't see them. But you know, they don't have to come through the doors anymore. They just come through your, your social media feed or the internet or, or whatever. I, I, they're just, they're, they're all out there. And see, here's the, here's the thing about savage wolves. It's genetics. They inherit it honestly. You are of your father, the devil. That's what Jesus said to some savage wolves. These were very religious people, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. Hmm, wonder what that means. More next week. The sermon, The Rise of the Serpent. Now, let me, let me just ask you a couple of questions. Make a couple of applications. Okay, uh, let me see if that needs to be... Oh, we'll get to that in a minute. Okay. This is a real question. Are you a part of the flock? Are you? If you're a Christian, you're a part of the flock. So let me ask you again. Are you a part of the flock? 
From the moment you became a believer, a target was painted on your back. And what weapon will they use? We saw it earlier, twisted words. They're going to use lies. And so what must you do? Acts 20, verses 29 and 30. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. Here's the twisted words from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And so Paul gives two things that you must do. You ready? Here are the two things that you must do. He says to the elders of the church, and I'm going to go from the second to the first. All right? He says, pay attention to the flock. And you say, well, I, I'm, I'm not an elder, so that really doesn't pertain to me. If you, if you are a dad, if you are a husband, if you're a grandfather, if you're a grandmother, a mother, do you see where I'm going with this? You are a shepherd over the flock that God has given you. Now, this is obvious that we're talking about elders in the church and you're a flock, and, and we realize that, but the first thing you need to do is pay careful attention to your flock. Now, you can't always determine what your children or grandchildren are going to do, right? But that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be shepherding them with what? With what? The truth, the Word of God. I dare say there were a lot of you who grew up in a good home. But I wonder how many of you caught the example of a father sitting down, maybe at the dinner table or whatever, or, or a family night, or, or at some time on a fairly regular basis, and sharing God's truth. And it's not always a guarantee that the children are going to hear and respond, but at least you are giving the flock that God has given to you the right equipment, the right weapons where they can fight against all of the lies. Let me just give you, and, and this is not, please, this is not meant to guilt. If you're not doing that and you're a dad the thing to do today is just repent and say, I haven't been doing it. God helped me to do it. And if you don't know what to do, call me or call one of the elders and we, we, we can put you on to some, by the way, the best devotional guide is just, is just this. Just start with the gospel of John or something else and read through it. Another thing that you can do is to make sure your children are getting auxiliary help. So whether it's this church or another, listen, Bible-believing church, your job, mom and dad, maybe grandparents, as a shepherd, your job is to make sure that the curriculum that they're getting in Sunday school and in our student ministry is the truth. There's a lot of stuff out there that's parading as truth, and it's not. It's amazing how just a little twist 
Paul talked about men who will use twisted things. And so it's vitally important. First thing is just get them there. Again, is, is this a, a, a cure-all, end-all? Is it a guarantee that your kids are going to turn out right? That, that's up to the Lord. But at least give them a fighting chance by making sure they are in Sunday school, Awana, any other ministry that is going to help them have the Word of God in their lives. That, that comes from a heart of, of love for your, for your flock. And for you. And it needs to be said. The importance of assembling with the flock just can't, it, it can't be overstated. I know. There are some people who will say, oh, you know, I've heard all this stuff about the warfare of the Christian. You know what? I'm a Christian, but I'll just kind of, I can go my own way. I can live in the world and... Uh, I just won't worry about this stuff. And here's what not only Jesus, but John said. And this is why it's important for you to be in a flock and not isolated. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, for many deceivers have gone out into the world. And if you're a believer and you say, I'll just, you know, he's talking about all this warfare stuff, I'll just kind of lay out. Again, the target has been painted on your back, and you're going to belong to somebody. The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, be kind to all, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. It's not just for me, it's for everyone who is a leader, who is a shepherd. But look at this. Why? Why is all that important? God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses. Here's the part that I want you to notice now. And escape from the snare of the devil having been captured by him to do his will. You, you belong to someone. And you are serving someone. I think it was that great theologian Bob Dylan, who said, you got to serve somebody. You got to serve somebody. Maybe the devil, maybe the Lord, but you're going to serve someone. And that's where I come to my last point. In preparation for this Advent season, the anatomy of a shipwrecked life. We're going to talk about Demas. And my guess is that I could, I could pick a selective, just a handful, maybe half of the congregation and say, hey, come up and share with us your testimony of suffering shipwreck. Now, some believe that this, and we went over this a couple of weeks ago, we're not going to go back into it, but you remember what I said, these two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, suffered shipwreck. That doesn't mean that they were lost eternally. Paul said that he was hopeful that they would be taught not to blaspheme. And so the, the, the probability is that they were true believers who had started listening either inside or outside of the flock. They had started listening to twisted things and they had allowed those things to remain 
And pretty soon they had adopted those things. And it, 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 it always is going to come out in a lifestyle. And they had made a shipwreck of their life. I did it. I grew up in church. I, I heard the word of God. Came to a place as a teenager where other things were more important. I, I looked for my meaning in other things other than the Lord. And the further that I went into that, the more my life suffered shipwreck. Shipwreck. Some of you could say the same things. And now, while this is not saying shipwreck, it is a, it is a powerful picture of the two paths that people are on in this congregation. There's no center aisle. There's no median. You, listen, please. You are either on a road. Now, by the way, this is not God saying, I'm going to get you. This is a natural consequence of being on one road or the other. So he mentions the negative road first, Jeremiah 17. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. And when we look to other things, and I'm talking about all of the things created by man, and some of them are not bad. Science, education, athletics, none of those things are in themselves wrong. Politics, but if you look to those things as your strength, I'm just hoping and praying. I mentioned this several weeks ago when it was fresh. Now it's old news. If you were putting your hope in a red wave to cure all of the moral issues and ethical issues in our country alone, let alone the whole world, putting your hope. I, I'm not saying not to elect and not to, these things are not unimportant, but when we depend on Anything in ourselves or around us other than the Lord and our heart is turned away, God's prophet Jeremiah said, you are a cursed person and you might not even realize it except for it gives a description of the, of the cursed person. A cursed person is like a shrub in the desert. I lived in El Paso, Texas one time. My first trip out to, to, to El Paso, Texas, going from Dallas-Fort Worth out, and we were coming in for a landing, and I looked out the window, and I saw a lot of shrubs in the desert turned to Jan and I said, I think I know a little bit what Moses must have felt like in the wilderness. It's not a really attractive place. Now, that was a physical picture. But he, my, my guess is that in, among these students and among the people spread out in this congregation today, that there are people who say, I feel like a shrub 
in the desert. Shall not see any good come. It's not that the good doesn't come, you just don't see it. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. That's one place, and there are people in this congregation. I'm not getting down on you any more than Jeremiah is. It's just a cause and effect. If you're making yourself or anything man-made your hope, your ultimate hope, and it's turned you away from the Lord, your life is a cursed life, and it's dry. It just is. But now look at the other path. And again, we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about direction. Man, what, what, a, what an incredible thing if, if your eyes could be open and you could see, I've been in the desert, but I don't have to be, particularly if you're a child of God. Blessed is the man who does what? Trust in the arm of the flesh? Trust in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. His trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water, not a shrub little scrawny shrub, you're like a tree planted by water that sends its roots by the stream. And you, no matter what is going on around you, while we may grieve deeply over the things that are going on in this country and around the world, you will not fear when the heat's turned up. For its leaves remain green. It's not anxious in the year of drought. Is that does not cease to bear fruit. You, my friend, my brother, my sister in Christ, you are in one place or the other. And if you've turned away from the Lord, you may not feel the full effects of it yet, but there is a dryness. And if you say, sorry, I'm just not going to have any of that, That's why Jeremiah was inspired by God to write the next verse. If you think you can escape being on one or the other, your heart has deceived you. Do you hear that? Because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart, test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to to the deeds, the, the fruit of his deeds. That's why Paul, got, he warned us against the, the false prophets. People who are saying twisted things, and this, I, I could just give example after example. But let, let, me just, let me just share a couple of things as we wrap this up. Listen, listen please, because... How do, how do you become a shipwrecked Christian? Let's say you're, you're a true Christian. You're going to heaven. You, you know, I, let me just share this. I, I said that I have a story of being shipwrecked. And when I got to the point of being so dry and barren, I didn't know this verse. I did know Romans 1. Apparently, I heard that from a, a sermon that was preached a long time before that about when you plumb the depths of sin, God will just, God will let you go. God will let you have what you want, you say you want. 
And when I cried out to God, it wasn't for him to save me from hell. It was for him to deliver me from the, the hell that I believed my life was in. And so how do you get there? I'm just going to give a couple of bullet points. How do you become? And by the way, Paul calls out different people. Hymenaeus, Alexander, uh, Phygelus, uh, Hermogenes, uh, Demas. We don't know if they're true believers or not, but they were people who made shipwreck. And here are some steps to shipwreck. You ready? Number one. Forget or ignore that you're in a war. Okay? Just forget it or ignore it, that you're in a war. You are at DEFCON 1. You're in a state of war. There is a clear and present danger. If you forget this, you're going to forget that you're vulnerable. Because people will twist the truth and tell you you're not. So that's the first. That's the first thing. That's just a step. By the way, usually uh, getting over here into being a shipwreck, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to happen through a series of small compromises, and that leads to the second thing: you just don't care. I I can preach my guts out with the truth out of Jeremiah. 17, and there are people who will leave this place and they just don't care. And that's tragic. That's a life headed for shipwreck. But even more tragic is when a church, by and large, shifts, starts listening to twisted things, And then they decide that they're just going to hire preachers and elders and teachers and youth pastors and all the rest who will give them what they want. And this is so tragic because it's not the savage wolves and the false teachers trying to gain ascendancy. The people just elect them. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They will have... Having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, will turn away from listening to the truth, and wander off into myths. So just forget or ignore that you're in a war. Second thing, just don't care. And then here's a third thing. And this is where I mentioned the little compromises. People who have little desire or no desire for holiness. Holiness just means I'm set apart to God. And, and you can teach that concept to your children. You should. And that should be something you talk about. Am I set apart to God? I'm set apart to something. Remember, there's, there's no in-between. I'm set apart to something today. And, and when people, number one, they forget they're in a war, number two, they just don't care, then that's going to lead to no desire, or maybe a little desire, but no desire for holiness being set apart from God. And I would ask you, is holiness, not having a desire for holiness, is it problematic? What do you think? How many of you think it's problematic? 
Well, the Bible says it is because it says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now, please don't do what people do when they're trying to defend themselves and say, well, you're just saying I have to be perfect. No, I'm trying to say what God says in, in Hebrews, that the desire for holiness needs to be there. I'm absolutely convinced. I know that there's false doctrine and it leads to ungodliness, but I really believe that nine times out of ten, the people who are falling away from church do so not out of a scientific problem, an interpretive problem. Well, I just don't agree with what they're teaching there. I don't think it's that. I, I believe that most people fall away first because of a moral problem, and then they twist Scripture, or they find the false prophets who've already twisted it for them to defend their own immoral lifestyle. And I think I'm pretty safe in saying that. Um, Peter said it like this, for if they, after they had escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they once again are entangled in them, the last state has become for them worse than the first. And that's why I plead with you, if you're on that road to barrenness, repent and get off that road. And put your trust in the Lord. Uh, somebody wrote this down and I wrote it down. Might have been John Piper, I, I, somebody. The root cause of apostasy is not just the failure to discern truth, but the failure to desire holiness. And that brings us to Demas. Did you know Demas is one of the only guys that's mentioned as a traveling companion with Paul regularly? And yet it came to the end of 2 Timothy, probably the last book that Paul wrote before he was martyred, had his head chopped off. And one of the saddest commentaries of a shipwrecked life is in Demas. Now watch what happened. Jeremiah 17, born out, right here. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me gone to Thessalonica. I don't know why he went to Thessalonica. The key word, having loved this present world, he's turned his back on everything. He fell, listen, not because there was no light. <laughs> I would think traveling with Paul, there was plenty of light. The problem wasn't that there was an absence of light. The problem was that he loved the darkness more than the light. How do you start Christmas? Lord, could I be a Demas? Am I in a desert? What hope is there for me? Your hope is a gospel hope. That's the whole message of Christmas. You see yourself as a sinner, and I hope you do. I hope there's not a Demas in the audience today, but my guess is there, there probably is. There probably, probably would be a couple 
more than a handful. But if you find yourself in that place, the gospel hope is confess your sins, own up, repent, turn away from self-effort. Classic definition of sin, playing God and fighting God. Turn away from that and turn and trust in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. He died on Calvary's cross for sinners like you and like me and like Paul who called himself the chief of sinners. Would you repent today? Would you believe in Jesus so that your life can be like that tree planted by water bearing fruit? Father, I thank you for an introduction to the Christmas story. I thank you that it deals, and we've dealt today with those who would steal the truth because, as we'll discover next week, there is such a pathological hatred from Satan against the Lord Jesus and against all of his followers. I pray that we would submit ourselves to sound doctrine, the truth. I pray that we would not be carried uh, astray by twisted things that others might bring in from the outside or even spin up from the inside. And I pray that today, if there has been anyone who has seen the fact that he has turned from you, that she has put her trust more in the flesh, and that person is in a barren place, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they would repent and turn to Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, for any believer who is on the road to shipwreck and pray that today would be a day in which he or she reverses that and begins to not only believe but live by your truth. Thank you, Father, for hearing us. I pray that you would affect that by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.